and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you're 12 years of age or younger and you would like to, come join me up front. Come on around, guys. Right, raise your hand if you've ever been to a party. Yep, yep, I can tell by your glasses, you've been to a party. All right, so now I want you to imagine we're all going to host a party, okay? You know what it means to host a party? You're like the person responsible for making the party, right? So we're going to host a party. What are some things we need to bring or have if we're going to host a party? Balloons, necessary. Cake, absolutely. Presents, food. Music. Music. Tables and chairs. Balloons, yeah, more balloons. Last one. Water. We're going to need some water from all the dancing and cake. So absolutely. <laughs> Second question. So we're going to go to the store to buy these things. How much money do you think we'll need? How much money do you think we'll need? $1,000, right? We're going to need a lot. Balloons are expensive because we're going to have a lot of balloons, right? Now, let me tell you this. We go to the store to buy these things. We put it all on the counter. The guy tells us that'll be $1,000. And guess what I say? I got $7. Is it? Maybe so. Do you have store credit, sir? I can say that, <laughs> right? All I have is $7. Now, how many people would come to the party if we only had $7? Seven people. Dollar per person <laughs> seems fair. So only seven people can come. So how many people should we invite? Seven people, right? So how would you feel if I didn't invite seven people, but instead I invited 5,000 people? Would that be a good party? That would be a little hard, right? But what if I told you it was a great party anyway? You want to listen how? Listen to today's sermon. I'll give you the answer. That's the worst cliffhanger ever. I'm so sorry. Back to your seats, guys. <clears throat> the feeding of the 5,000 is a story that you've heard so many times you probably wonder if there's anything left to learn. And that's the problem with familiar stories. You know them inside and out, frontwards and backwards, so when someone begins telling you a story that you've heard a million times, your eyes glaze over, your mind goes on autopilot, and you wait for the sweet relief of the ending. The feeding of the 5,000 seems to fall into that exact trap. To make matters worse, the story itself is actually really simple. A legitimate Cliff Notes version would be this. Jesus teaches a large crowd in the wilderness and then miraculously feeds everyone with just a handful of fish and a pieces of bread. That's about it. On the surface, that's about it. But as I'm sure you can already guess, there's more going on in this story than the Cliff Notes version would lead you to believe. But to see it, to see the feeding of the 5,000 in a fuller light, you need to look just a few paragraphs before our gospel text. And here's what's happening just before our gospel text. In Matthew 13, verse 53, we see that Jesus has returned to his hometown. And you would think a homecoming would be a good thing, right? That's not what happens. 
Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue, the same synagogue where Jesus would have listened to the Torah as a boy, the same synagogue where he had attended numerous times with his family. But now Jesus begins teaching, and his teachings do not disappoint. Verse 54 says this, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Jesus taught with a kind of clarity. He spoke with a kind of authority that shocked the people who heard him. He performed mighty works that astonished those who saw them. And you would think that if people were shocked with the veracity of Jesus' teaching, if they were astonished at the mighty works he performed, those things would give Jesus credibility. But somehow it doesn't. Those who heard Jesus teach and were astonished rejected him anyway. You see, these people had watched Jesus grow up. They had watched him play as a child. They had seen him fall down and skin his knees. They'd heard him ask for a cup of water before. These people had probably seen a sleepy young Jesus tuckered out from a hard days of playing, falling asleep on his mama's shoulder. These people were so familiar with who Jesus was, it seems they couldn't see who he had become. Jesus stood in front of them and talked with an authority that did not match the things they knew once about him. But instead of changing their view of Jesus, the people of his hometown rejected him anyway. Matthew records the ending of Jesus' homecoming with these words. And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Ironically, it was their familiarity with Jesus that stopped them from truly seeing him. And it's important that we notice that for a variety of reasons. One of the most important reasons is that in the very next story Matthew tells, it mirrors that exact problem. Matthew 14 begins with a really curious confession. The fame of Jesus was now spreading and had finally reached the ears of King Herod himself. And what Herod heard troubled him. Matthew 14 verse 2 says this, And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. That quote from Herod reveals for the very first time something shocking. John the Baptist is dead. Is it just me, or does Matthew break the news in a weird way, though? Imagine someone told you, I was dead, but they did it like Matthew. Imagine they said, hey, I was at the mall yesterday and I saw a guy that looked exactly like Bubba. And I thought to myself, what's this guy, back from the dead? Oh, by the way, Bubba's dead. <laughs> because that's not how you tell a story, right? But I think the reason that Matthew does it this way is because Matthew doesn't want us to focus just on the fact that John is dead. Instead, Matthew wants us to focus on how similar Jesus and John the Baptist were. That John the Baptist and Jesus are so closely aligned their mission and ministry are so similar that someone could mistake one from another. I think Matthew wants us to see that at the same time Jesus is being rejected by his own hometown, John the Baptist is being beheaded by a ruthless king. And they both are rejected for essentially the same thing. Jesus is rejected by his hometown and John is beheaded for daring to speak the truth. That's it. The incarnate Son of God delivers unprecedented wisdom to some of his oldest friends, and they say no thanks. 
John the Baptist tells Herod that stealing your brother's wife is evil. Shocker. Herod kills him in response. Both of these stories show that speaking the truth in a world that loves lies will cost you. Whatever else the feeding of the 5,000 is, it's a story that takes place after Jesus' family and hometown friends have rejected him. It's a story that takes place immediately after his cousin has been murdered. It's a story that's shaped and colored and framed by two of the most tragic events of Jesus' life so far. And as Matthew 14 begins, we see that the leader has learned of John's death before Christ himself has. Remarkably, Matthew offers us a glimpse into the heart-wrenching moment where Jesus first learns that his cousin, his friend, are gone. The first five words of our gospel text. Now, when Jesus heard this, what does Jesus do in response? Well, he seems to respond the same way many of us have. Our text said, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place to be by himself. Have you ever received news so devastating that you needed a moment to process it? Yeah, Jesus did too. He needed some space. He needed a moment to take in what had just happened. And I don't think that the death of John caught Jesus by surprise, but it was nonetheless a deep cause of grief for Jesus. So he withdrew to be by himself to grieve for his friend. And I think that's a crucial point for us to make. Guys, Christians have full permission to grieve the loss of a loved one. We have full permission to feel the agony of separation that accompanies the death of those we love. Christ himself withdrew when John was murdered. Christ himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And if you believe we can follow the actions of Jesus, you have permission to do the same. When someone we love passes away, I often hear Christians say things like, I know I shouldn't be sad because they're with the Lord now. And while it's true that our hope is in God, and knowing that our loved ones rest with Christ does offer some consolation, it doesn't mean that their death ceases to cause us pain. Christ shows that both things are true. You can deeply grieve the loss of someone you love while still having a sure hope that that person isn't lost to you forever. While Jesus withdrew into a desolate place to be alone, to grieve and pray, he doesn't have long to do those things. Because when the crowds hear where he is, they flock to him. I imagine Jesus is sitting on a hill by himself, hurt by the death of John, probably even contemplating his own death to come. I imagine Jesus praying and crying out to his Father in heaven, and then in the distance, Jesus sees a mass of people begin to break the horizon and stream towards him. Jesus withdrew to a desolate place to be alone and grieve, but with 5,000 people walking towards him, solitude was no longer an option. But what's interesting is how he responds. Matthew says that when Jesus saw them, he had compassion on them. And this word compassion is a lot more interesting than you first think. When we think compassion, when we think of that word, we usually think that it means something like Jesus felt really sorry for them, as if compassion is just a description of Jesus' inner feelings and that's it. But the word compassion is far richer and more descriptive than that. The word compassion literally means to move with passion. 
Another translation describes the word compassion as Jesus had a gut feeling. And you can think about it like this. Imagine you see a sweet little chubby baby slam their tiny little finger in a heavy wood door. How quickly do you move to them? You move with passion. How much can you feel the pain they feel? You can feel it in the pit of your stomach. You know as well as I do that when we see that which we love suffer, you have a gut feeling. You have compassion. This seems to be exactly what Jesus feels when he sees the masses of people. Even in the midst of his grief, even in a desolate place, Jesus continued loving his people. He continued the work he had been given to do. He healed, he proclaimed the good news of his kingdom, because for as deep as grief may strike us, love strikes us deeper still. And we aren't sure how long Jesus healed and taught the masses, but what we do know is that as the day came to the close, the disciples noticed a looming problem. There were over 5,000 people in a desolate place, and everyone was going to be hungry soon. And while Jesus was doing great things and the people loved him for it, he was going to have to dismiss them soon. I mean, over 5,000 people need food, and the disciples barely have enough for themselves, just a few fish and loaves. So the disciples go to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, great work today, man. But listen, it's getting dark. We're in the middle of nowhere. You've got to tell everyone to go home or at least go into the towns so they can get their own food. And on the surface, guys, that seems like a very sensible observation. They really were in a desolate place. They really didn't have enough food to feed everyone. They had $7. That's it. But what does Jesus tell them? Jesus tells them, the people can stay. You feed them. Now, Matthew doesn't describe how the disciples respond. I think in part because they probably didn't say anything. They were speechless. I mean, imagine I invited 5,000 people to church. They all showed up this morning, and I told the fellowship committee, y'all deal with it, whatever, I'll be in my office. All the questions and doubts they would have, I think the disciples had too. Jesus tells these silent disciples, though, to bring him what they have, to bring him the bread and the fish. Jesus then blesses the food. He broke the loaves. He gave the baskets to his disciples, and miraculously, every single person ate to their satisfaction. Even though they were in a desolate place, even though they started with almost nothing by the end, there was enough to even fill 12 baskets. So what's this about? And I don't mean how did Jesus multiply the loaves and fish. I am not the least bit interested in the mechanism by which Jesus performs miracles. That's not the real question. The real question is why did Jesus tell the disciples they should feed the people when he knew they didn't possess the means? If you've been listening carefully, you might have just thought of the answer. The disciples cannot meet the needs of over 5,000 people, their abilities, their resources were far less than what the job required. They simply could not do it with what they had. But if they took what they had to Jesus, he could multiply it in ways they couldn't imagine. I think the feeding of the 5,000 is a real-life demonstration of the parables of Matthew 13. 
Each of those parables point out that God is at work in this world in unseen ways. And even though you may not be able to perceive how God works, if you trust that He is, God will bring about a fruitfulness that you could not imagine. Jesus doesn't need you to possess a lot. He needs you to trust Him with what you have. The mustard seed doesn't need to be the, a, a giant seed in order to grow into a mighty tree. No, it just needs to be planted. The disciples didn't have enough food to feed 5,000 people. They just needed to bring what they had to Jesus. And my friends, we're no different. I don't care what you have. I don't care what abilities you possess. I don't care how insufficient you think they are. Because you know what? You're probably right. Your capabilities and your capacities are no match for the sheer amount of needs in this world. Mm -hmm. But if the feeding of the 5,000 teaches us anything, it teaches us just take what you have to Jesus. Take what you have to Him, lay them at His feet, trust Him with everything you have regardless of how small it may be because Jesus promises to take your tiny mustard seed of faith he promises to take your meager capacities and abilities and under his hand with his abilities, with his resources, Jesus will multiply what you have in ways that can reshape the world. Amen.